standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 281 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and when I went to watch season five of What We Do in the Shadows, having learned from Hannah on Outside the Box that it had finally, finally dropped, I discovered I hadn't even seen season four yet. Hooray! Now it's funny you should say that because when I kept saying how brilliant it was when Laszlo was raising baby Colin Robinson, you weren't fervently agreeing with me. And I kept thinking, what's wrong with her? This is the funniest thing this series has ever done. Yeah. And she's just nodding. I know. I don't know that I've seen season three. I think that might have happened just after I'd had Lyra. I think it's fresher than that. Because I've definitely watched them in the last two years. So season three ends, spoiler if you've not seen it, sorry, with... Colin Robinson dying and yes yeah, so I've not seen that yeah okay you would remember because it's quite traumatic but in a very funny way yeah I'm having a lovely time watched seven episodes yesterday lovely stuff literally Laszlo as his dad <laughs> is just <laughs> tremendous it works on every single level yeah it's brilliant you'd love it Jen because there's quite a lot of stuff about just raising kids in general perfect yeah yeah where are you watching it what where can I Disney obtain? plus Disney plus yeah. which I do have there so, you go uh... crack on Great Guillermo content as well. Yeah. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I met myself a small but very big-eared puppy at the weekend. I'm assuming you met another puppy than mine because you've used the descriptor small and our puppy is fucking massive. (laughs) Didn't get the chance to say the owners were wankers, obviously. (laughs) Rude. It was Mickey's dog. She's delightful. She is cute. Delightful. Missy doggy Sometimes Missy misbehaviour idiot if we're feeling like, stop doing what you're doing. But yeah, she's cute. She was in my car. She didn't trash it. She was in a pub. She behaved herself. She was particularly well behaved on Friday night, actually. It's good. Hannah, you did put her ear in your mouth, didn't you? I good. did, yeah, of course. Good work. Feel my work. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Jen Offord and I'm not sure how I feel about experimental flute music. Bilious. Well, you and most of the world, I would say, Jen. <laughs> Do you know what I'm referring to, Hannah? You in particular no. may be interested in this. It's the new album by Andre 3000. Is it? Yeah. And it's experimental flute it's music? It's experimental flute music, mate. Oh, I mean, I'm probably going to buy it in that case. I bloody love him. <laughs> if it was just a picture of him smiling on the front cover of it, and just holding a flute, I'm in. The but it's not Hannah, it's... Smiling. it's it's a yeah. 13 minute 50 second long track of experimental flute music it made me immediately think of anchorman and jazz flute and andre yeah, 3000 just popping up under a toilet cubicle and how we'd feel about that it's nowhere near as entertaining as that okay to be honest that concept it's just, it's just very long and rambling and yeah i think it's He's not released anything since 2006, so it's an extremely bold move. I think think you are sure how you feel about experimental flute music, Jen. I think you don't like it. I don't feel Uh. good about it, to be honest. (laughs) On, on, On a first interrogation of my feelings, I'd say not great, yeah. Mystery solved. He started acting, didn't he? And then he was basically, I think that industry's fucked and stopped. Oh, did he? I know he played Jimi Hendrix, didn't he? Yeah. In a film. But I didn't realise he said, oh, that's fine. Apparently, he was just like, I'm 48. I'm too old to be making rap music. I don't know what these kids are talking about. No, I'm going to do this instead. Which I suppose, fair play to him. 
but not fair play to the listeners. Not fair play to me. No, not fair play to Jen. Coming up, Lisa Bascott talks to me about Second Line of Defence, her award-winning female-focused recruitment agency for the private security sector, about why she started it and the power of an angry woman who gets shit done. I've had to think about that sentence a couple of times, Mick. Oh, Award-winning female-focused recruitment agency for the private security sector. Bloody hell. Yeah, I think, I mean, it says what it does on the tin. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's yeah, it's a lot to think about. <laughs> uh, anyway, I chat to fashion editor Bay Garnett about her new book, Style and Substance, Why What We Wear Matters, Thrifting a Bargain and Sustainable Fashion. And in Jenny Off the Blocks, Premiership Women's Rugby is back. I reckon former rugby players would be great for... Uh award-winning, female-focused recruitment agencies for, for the private security sector. I'd, I'd love FYI. them as second line of defence, absolutely. Yeah. First line of defence. Did you yeah. play defence? Get involved. <laughs> and in Rated or Dated, it's time for the second meeting of the standard issue Denim Elliott fan well. club as we watch Trading Places. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Aghast oh, faces all round. Laughs forever. But first, won't somebody think of the apostrophes? It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Q-Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where the message, stop killing people, you twats, remains both evergreen and equal opportunities. Yeah. (laughs) Hard agree. Hard agree. 43 conflicts in the world right now, Jen. Yeah, there's a lot of it about, isn't there? There's yeah. a lot of it about, and it is all deeply, deeply unpleasant. Uh, okay, so Mick, do you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how the costs of forking out for emergency accommodation are pushing local authorities into financial difficulties? Yeah, as well as the women wanting equal pay, of course, but mostly the fact yeah. that, you know, housing is fucked. Mm. Yeah. Well, The Guardian has given us more depressing housing news this week as it reported on huge numbers of people living in unlicensed houses in multiple occupation or HMOs as they are known. So a property is considered an HMO if at least three tenants live in it forming more than one household and the toilet, bathroom or kitchen facilities are shared with the other tenants. Right. So like the other households basically. So any house that falls within that description is an HMO, but typically we would associate them with bedsits or similar types of accommodation. A large HMO is comprised of at least five tenants forming more than one household and requires a licence from the local council. And the landlords must adhere to regulations, such as, for example, ensuring that properties aren't overcrowded and that they stick to things like minimum bedroom sizes. Okay, you with me? Yeah, I'm with you. Okay, But obviously, where there's a buck to be made and a dire lack of affordable housing, unscrupulous landlords are going to take advantage. And information compiled by councils suggests that there could be as many as 32,000 unlicensed HMOs housing more than 150,000 tenants in England at the moment. I tried to do a kind of whistle in response, but I'm not very good at whistling. So if you could just imagine a kind of can't do it but yeah wow so what does that mean well it means that obligations do not need to be met obviously if no one knows who they are and there is no knowledge of occupancy rates fire safety measures or any other conditions within the properties which the guardian describes in some cases as and i quote squalid it's not how you want your home to be described is it 
It's not a nice word, is it? Nope. Of course, this is just part of any number of problems in the private rented sector. And the Renters Reform Bill is currently at committee stage in the Commons. The government has recently committed to applying the decent home standard to the private rented sector as well as across social housing. But if you don't know where the properties are, of course, that does become rather harder to enforce. It's a really shit treasure hunt, isn't it? Like, no treasure, just squalor. Just squalor. If you've got a minute, I would recommend checking out the Guardian's Living Hell series. Because, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, why not? Get a cup yeah. of tea. Sit yourself down. Uh, and if you need advice on your rights in the private rented sector, check out shelter.org.uk. Money, 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 isn't it, Jenster? Mm. Yes, and on that theme, and in news that is technically new, but still will probably surprise no one, it turns out the richest 1% of humanity is responsible for more carbon emissions than the poorest 66%. Want to guess who gets hit the hardest by the floods, fires, drought and other natural disasters brought on by climate change? It ain't Jeff Bezos, I can tell you that. Yeah. And women and girls very much suffer disproportionate consequences. I can tell you that as well. The Great Carbon Divide, a six-month special investigation from Oxfam, the Stockholm Environment Institute, The Guardian and other experts can tell us even more. It's the most comprehensive study of global climate inequality ever undertaken and it shows that this elite group of one percenters, which comprises 77 million people and includes billionaires, millionaires, and those paid more than 140,000 US dollars, which is about 112,500 pounds a year. It's a big gap, though, from millionaire to that, right? Mm-hmm. They accounted for 16% of all CO2 emissions, which is a staggering 5.9 billion tons wow. in 2019. To put that into context, according to the report, that is enough to cause more than a million excess deaths due to heat. Wow. Yeah. And for a little more context, Africa which, you know, it's quite big, and home to about one in six of the world population, was responsible for just 4% of emissions. So the fallout from this disproportionately affects people living in poverty, marginalised ethnic communities, migrants and women and girls who live and work outside or in homes vulnerable to extreme weather. Mm-hmm. And of course, these groups are much less likely to have savings, insurance or social protection which leaves them more economically as well as physically vulnerable to floods, drought, heat waves, and forest fires. Chiara Liguri, Oxfam's senior climate justice policy advisor, said the twin crises of climate and inequality were, quote, fueling one another. I mean, that seems pretty fucking obvious, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, not dissonant, well done for saying it, but it does feel like a statement of the obvious. The super rich are plundering and polluting the planet to the point of destruction, she continued. And it is those who can least afford it who are paying the highest price. Climate justice will hopefully be high on the agenda of this month's UN COP28 climate summit in the United Arab Emirates. And it really fucking needs to be. Wow. I mean, that is, yeah, it's really bleak. You will remember, Mick. Uh, maybe listeners will. But if you can, uh, if if you can seek it out, uh, I interviewed Freddie Otto, Dr. Freddie Otto, who is a climate scientist a while back for the podcast and she talked about all of you know the issues around climate change and inequality and uh, yeah expresses it all in a very accessible way yeah she was great worth a listen if you want to know more about that stuff but are we actually sending anyone to cop 28 do we care about that anymore are we like about as interested in that as we are in human rights i don't know rishi sooner gets like a private jet to his shoes doesn't he it's like ridiculous (laughs) oh god 
Rick, would you like some good news? Oh, fuck, get it in my ears immediately, <laughs> if not sooner, please. I mean, I know how you like to see the correct use of an apostrophe. Yes, please. And that's a joke, listeners, about my historic incorrect use of an apostrophe. If you follow our Twitter feed and you've ever seen one, that was me. <laughs> Can confirm. And so too do the residents of St Mary's Terrace in Twyford, Hampshire. Villagers were said to be, and I quote, extremely pleased <laughs> after an apostrophe was returned to the street following a year-long wait. Wow. That's a little thing, isn't it, Jen? <laughs> Clearly no one in that village had been reading the news. <laughs> yeah, um, the least of our worries, although still valid. Still a whole valid. year without an apostrophe. Anyway, the terrace lost its apostrophe after the sign was replaced and residents were naturally pissed to notice the replacement was son's punctuation. Thankfully, Winchester City Council were able to recover the old sign and reinstate it. Phew. The incident was first reported by resident Oliver Gray, of whom local councillor Susan Cook said, Oliver is a former teacher and he knows his grammar. If you want to change a sign, do it right. Get that on a t-shirt, Susan. (laughs) Hear, hear, Susan. I hope Oliver taught grammar better than my teachers did. Yeah, former teacher doesn't mean anything about grammar or getting things right, I'm afraid. But well done, Oliver. I agree, it's the little things that will keep this country going. (laughs) More news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where I talk about the menopause again. I know, I'm such a cliche. Anyway, there's been some fresh guidance from the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, that's nice, stating that cognitive behavioural therapy, or CBT, can be offered to women alongside or instead of hormone replacement therapy. It's HRT. Alongside? Sure. Go for it. Sure thing. Instead of, um, what the actual nice? No, not nice. Not nice at all. And more to the point, not fucking effective. With the caveats that one, HRT isn't right for every woman. Two, it won't be the complete answer even for the many who can safely use it and benefit from it. And three, I'm not a medical professional. <laughs> I'll tell you what isn't going to sort hot flashes, night sweats, vaginal dryness and higher risk of osteoporosis. And that is chatty. That's not going to work. <laughs> as well as leaving women with treatable symptoms untreated, it's it's insulting, basically, and harks back to the idea, still ongoing, that a lot of female health issues are actually just all in our pretty heads. Or we're hysterical. Or, as has been levelled at perimenopausal women for centuries, mad. They're just mad. <laughs> just put a wet paper towel on it, woman, and stop whinging. The draft guideline, which also applies to trans men and non-binary people registered female at birth, seems to be a cost-cutting exercise from what I can make of it. In notes attached to the guidelines, the drafting committee said that the recommendation of CBT, which could be done online and in groups rather than individual face-to-face sessions, would be a change to clinical practice. While it might mean higher demand for therapy services, it could reduce costs if it meant people were able to manage their own symptoms, they said. That might mean they would not need other treatments such as HRT, which require regular reviews and prescriptions. And cost money for the NHS! Dr Louise Newson, a GP and the go-to expert on the menopause, was, like most of us, disappointed. (laughs) I feel like that's an understatement, uh, for me, certainly. 
CBT may have a place when taking a holistic approach to managing the perimenopause, but it won't improve every menopause symptom and won't treat the underlying hormone deficiency, she said. HRT is a first-line treatment to improve symptoms. In addition to the numerous and often distressing symptoms, we must address the long-term health risks of low hormones. Now, it's been heartening to see much more talk about and acceptance of the perimenopause and its effects over the last few years. So this feels like a, a massive step backwards. What remains heartening, though, is that talking has helped. It has helped yeah. women come together. It's helped them feel less alone and mad, in inverted commas, <laughs> and start campaigning for action. I, I don't think we're going to shut up now. You know what's even worse about this is that CBT uh, is like, because I had CBT for, you know, I had my obligatory six sessions on the NHS a while ago to summarise, I guess, like catastrophizing or sort of anxiety or, or, or like, and so CBT isn't even really the one where you chat about how you feel. It's the one where you learn how to dismiss your irrational feelings. Exactly. It's, it's the one where you develop coping mechanisms so that you don't do bonkers things, basically. Uh, bonkers and inverted commas I don't want to offend anyone like I say I have had CBT myself <laughs> yeah but like it's the one where you develop coping mechanisms to deal with with your bad reaction or unhelpful reaction or whatever to whatever it is you're going through I don't even understand how that would work in the context of not even that it would work I just I don't understand how that's in any way appropriate no just getting women to think that it's all in their heads again yeah right? you're like, mad how do I make these hot flashes less hot Oh, just, you know, I'll tell myself that they're not real. Yeah, like will them to be less hot or will yourself to react differently to them? Why should you react differently to them if there's a treatment available that actually makes them just not be there in the first place? Because it's a draft document. NICE are actually accepting thoughts on this. So feel free to tell NICE your thoughts on this. I'm going to call it bullshit. I'm going to agree with you. Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by Lisa Baskett, founder and CEO of the award-winning Second Line of Defence, the UK's first female-focused recruitment agency for the private security sector. Lisa, hello. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Thanks for coming on, because Lisa, you definitely fall into the category of not all heroes wear capes. Could you tell me your Second Line of Defence origin story, please? The private security industry, as it stands at the moment, didn't know who I was. The 1st of January this year, I dare say that they do now. I'm a Londoner, born and bred, raised in Clapham in South London. I relocated to Brighton. I live in Hove uh, with my two children. And that was sort of during lockdown still. So it was end of February, beginning of March 2021. And within about eight days of moving to my new home, um, really good mood, turned the telly on and I could see a news bulletin. Volume was down and I turned it up. And I just heard the words, Missing since last night, Clapham, left her home, called her boyfriend on the way home and I had that sort of sinking feeling in my stomach and I just thought, Jesus, another woman murdered, dead, not going to find her. And then, yeah, lo and behold, the announcement from the Met Police that Wayne Cousins was the perpetrator. Sort of all my worlds collided at that point because he was a police officer, now I'm a serving magistrate of 11 years so, you know, a mother of two teenage children, a serving magistrate of 11 years, and this thing happening in my hometown. I was just like, whoa, 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 what's going on? And it felt pretty pertinent to me because, as I say, 
my teenage children are now closer to the age of 18 and able to go out mm. and drink and do stuff. So all of a sudden, this felt really, really personal. And to be quite honest, I was just really fucking angry that this stuff was still going on and that, you know, at the hands of men. And then I, I just remember signing every petition that was out. And then when I saw, I think the real catalyst is when I saw the peaceful visual yes. outside the bandstand on Cabin Common and that literally, there was a flip moment for me. There was rage before, but that was a flip moment. And I thought, one of your own has done this to a woman. These women are here under really difficult circumstances because they all have a shared story. Every single one of those women felt that pain. It could have been them. And the Met Police's response was so indicative of the mess that it's currently in. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was it for me. And I knew at that moment I felt compelled to do something. I didn't actually know what I was going to do, but I was just sort of like <laughs> raging. And I found myself sort of subliminally looking into instances of violence against women. And also I widened the remit and I was thinking about vulnerable people, be they members of the gay community, be they in particular cultures or heritage, particularly in the nighttime economy, it's a difficult place for vulnerable people. Mm -hmm. And essentially, whilst I was looking into what has happened over the years, I realised very quickly that the frontline emergency services in particular, the police, they don't, they don't exist at that level. They haven't done for a very long time, and that's for a number of reasons, whether it's austerity, people retiring early, and it just not being a, an industry that people want to go in. And essentially, that role at that level has actually been filled by the private security industry, which has been regulated for the last 20 years, since um, 2001. However, scratching the surface of that organisation, if you think that an awful lot of people that come out of, in particular, the Met Police, so those serving police officers who then go up, set up private security companies, you can see that the culture within mm -hmm. that establishment is just transferred to this new private industry where oversight, despite being regulated, is lacking. And when I looked at the numbers of licensed officers out there at a frontline level, I think since being regulated, I think 485,000 licenses have been issued, only 10% of them. Wow. So I remember thinking, hang about, whoa, 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 whoa. So every time, 90% of the time that I go out, the person on the door doesn't look like me, yeah. doesn't understand me, more importantly, doesn't understand my actual journey, right? We get a phone call from a friend, do you want to go out? And we're like, yeah, sure. I am subliminally already thinking, what am I going to wear? Is that going to look too short? I've got flat shoes on. Is my phone charger? I've got a backup charger. I've got enough money to get home on my taxi. Uh, what dickhead is going to comment on the way that I look when I'm standing at the bus stop? When I'm in the queue, is the bouncer going to be an asshole? When I get inside the club, is my drink going to get spiked? Am I going to get touched up? And then we've got all of that again on the way home. And no one understands this at all, let alone people that look the opposite of us standing on those doors. And I had a light bulb moment, essentially. I recognised that the people standing on the door who were supposedly safeguarding the people coming through those doors, there was a massive disconnect going there. This huge disconnect means that in the society in which we live in now, you have situations where young girls, vulnerable people are being clubs and bars. 
things, horrible things will happen to them. But because they feel afraid to go and speak to the person on the door who looks relatively menacing, they'll walk out of that blah, 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 and not report it mm-hmm. and not do anything about it. And it's unacceptable, absolutely unacceptable. It was at that point that I decided that I had to do something about it and I don't do anything by half. So off I went and I thought, right, I'm going to show them how it's done. I went off and I got myself qualified as a doorkeeper. Loved it. I absolutely loved it. I didn't have to before I set up the recruitment company, but I realised actually you need to get out there. You need to actually know what it feels like to be a woman standing on the doors. You need to talk to people as they come through the doors to find out what their experiences have been and are. Speak to other door supervisors about the industry sector, what they feel about it, what could be done better. And I did that for 19 months. And it was unbelievable. It was actually like, it was amazing. I'm a bit of a night. I like to go out and party. And it was a really brilliant way to connect, essentially. So I spent hours talking to people. I spoke to hundreds of people, door staff, venue owners, about safety elements, what they were doing over and above just taking people's money and, you know, kicking them out at the end of the night. Yep. Particularly in big university towns like Brighton, where you have huge amounts of students coming in on a regular basis to clubs and bars and, you know, they're drunk, they're doing drugs and, you know, they're just slightly more carefree than most other people. What are you doing? Where's your duty of care? What are you doing? What other ancillary services do you have? There were a couple of places that I worked with in Brighton where they had paramedics in on big student nights doing the rounds in the club, which was absolutely amazing. Mm. And they also made sure that every single member of staff, whether you were bar staff or any other staff, you were welfare trained in certain situations. So you know, the ability to look out for vulnerable people, recognising signs of sort of coercive control or domestic violence, checking and making sure that women, if they needed, had stock tops on their drinks and making sure that they understood always making sure that there were women in toilets who would come through and radio to me as a female member of staff standing outside at security. Lisa, come in, we need your help. So there were some organisations that were really, really proactive and forward thinking, but as you can imagine, the majority of them do not care. Right? They don't care. Yeah. And it's, it's a real problem. Clearly 20 years have gone by and this industry was still, when it comes to sort of diversity and inclusivity were like like years behind there was a networking event and i remember just stalking people on linkedin finding out who the movers and shakers are within the industry and i thought right you and i are going to have a word we're going to have what we're going to and so i remember being at an event international women's day this week on march the 8th and the uh, ceo of the regulatory body which is called the security industry authority somebody said to me oh Michelle Russell is, you know, in the front seat. I was like, right, this is your moment sort of thing. And I didn't know what I was going to say, but I just thought I've just got loads to say to you. And not all good, right? Uh-huh. I didn't care. I just didn't care. So what are you going to say to me? I know I'm right. And so off I went. And I was in the brunch and attached her on the shoulder. I went, I'm Lisa. This is what I do. And I've got a few things that I need to say to you. And I just sort of went, number one, blah, 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 blah. And I sort of just <laughs> did that. <laughs> woman which is sort of standing in front of me she like froze thinking who is this mad person but then we had a conversation and it was the most amazing conversation that I had because here is a woman who'd taken over the role of not much before I was talking to her 
and she was trying to also she she recognised the change that was needed in the industry, mm-hmm. and she was doing her best to do something about it. And she became we became allies essentially. Oh, Lisa, you're this incredible mix of angry woman who gets shit done. We we fucking love them on Standard Issue. The amount of campaigns that have been started by a woman just gone, I am not standing for this anymore. So, you know, tip of the hat and heart shape for you there. But also, like, come by our, like, this community thing of bringing people together because that's you can't just do it on your own. That is where change happens. I did want to ask... My sister actually did the SIA door supervisor course a long time ago, probably like 10, 15 years ago. She passed with flying colours, but no one, no one would hire a woman to work the St. Helens pubs and clubs. Has that changed? Yes, it has. So as a woman, I I, I, I worked everything over that spectrum. I, I worked, you know, the London to Brighton bike ride, Lewis fireworks, boxing matches, Weddings, vomits, furs, fat boy slim, private parties. Awesome. I mean, you just, you just, you just, you just name it. Everything I have done, and I specifically said to the organisation that I, I wanted strip club in Brighton. That's just seen all these like amazing women doing amazing stuff. But you know, I wanted to see everything, and I stood on the door outside pubs as well, right, as part of the team, never as a lone woman. I don't think there are any door supervisors should ever be in a position like that working their own mm. should always be at least in a pair that's another conversation but no i i worked a- across across the spectrum i can't imagine in particular areas that a woman working on the door might be more tricky right because there'll be people wanting to have a proper air but it, you know generally speaking you work as part of a team you need to be establishing right there and then that here i am in a position of trust that I see you, I'm here to facilitate your night out, and I want you to know that I'm conversing with you, that if anything goes wrong with you in there, you know that you can come to me and have that conversation. And this is where that complete, you know, I think the industry at the front line level was completely forgotten. That actually, this is a front of house role. Mm. It's a it's a concierge role. It's a role that involves empathy, communication skills, right? And you get that right at that point of entry then they will pretty much, if anything kicks off within that in that club or bar, they'll listen to you, right? They, my, my team used to say, if anything was kicking off on the dance floor with folk, they send me in because I would be able to de-escalate the situation just like that, right? Partly because I just talked to them like their mum. That would always... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't she mess with you, Lisa. I wouldn't mess with you. She's got that mum voice going on. But generally speaking... It's because I had a chit-chat with them. I'd say, look, it's me. Look, whatever you're thinking, it's not worth it, right? Look at me. Calm down. You stand over there. You stand over there. Whatever it is, is not that important, right? You're here for a good time, right? Just have it. Have it, and you can you can stay. But if this is what you're going to do, then we'll kick you out. But there are just so many ways in which you can manage those situations with the diversity in your team, yeah. right? Um, and I think the the sooner organisations see that as their winning formula, the better. You know, we already we know the stats on diversity. Right? We, we, for the last twenty years, we've heard that more initiative, more productive, and it, about thirty percent extra on your bottom line yeah. if you make sure that you have a mixture, not just gender but culture as well. You know. Literally, people from different backgrounds 
all mixing together, all reflecting the people that are coming through the door. How can that not work? Yeah. Despite often being on the front line when things go wrong, like you say, these these people on the door, these door supervisors, the people within the club who are looking out for people, are there when it matters. But historically, the job isn't well paid. The hours are antisocial. That is not an easy sell. Yeah, no. So, I mean, that's the challenge. Right? And that's partly why I had to walk in the shoes of the role of the people that I'm trying to, you know, I want to be that voice for those people, having seen what I've seen. You know, I'm a relatively privileged woman um, who chose to do that. So lots of people were like, that posh player too, working at the top. They just couldn't get their head. They were just like, why is she doing this? But it's, it's about, you know, making sure that they have a voice. Look, the regulator is doing so much more than it has done previously. But it's, I still believe that it needs to step up and needs to protect and have the back of those many men and women who are doing their job, as you say, unsociable hours. And the public's response and behaviour mm. towards people. I mean, it's, it's an interesting one. I don't need to talk to some colleagues about this. I would like to find out the sort of balance between whether people in the industry think rogue door people are more horrible towards vulnerable people than horrible members of the public being re- because I think there's a 50-50 you know, yeah you know the, if you knew the statistics particularly in there are two areas of concern within security one is retail and the other is healthcare. And it's in those situations where, as you can imagine, in healthcare, you've got people who are agitated because, you know, either someone is ill or they need to be seen and blah, blah, blah. And remember, the pandemic, people's behaviour shifted massively. That sense of community just kind of went out the window. That respect mm. people made. It just it seemed like anything was able to go, and no more so than within the retail sector as well. So the level of racist, sexist, misogynist, homophobic, it is at levels that is just unacceptable and frightening, right? So 25% increase in shoplifting and violent crimes. You know, one in four times that you go out, it is likely that you are going to see some horrible thing happen outside of Primark or outside of KFC or inside of Macadies, like whether it's people kicking off, whether it's knife crime, whether it's organised crime, whether it's just people just being vile, that's, it, it's just, it's growing at a rate that it's alarming to the point where um, there's a consortium that a forum that has been put together, which is a mixture of security, uh, national security uh, companies, police and crime commissioner and retail organisations. So now they've all gotten together and they are called Project Pegasus. And what they're trying to do is find ways in which they can work together to combat, in particular, violent organised crime, which is rife. I've spent sort of the last 18 months fine-tuning what I believe is essential for, for a better world, right? For a better community, for a better, you know, society. But essentially, these are three broad principles that I think will push the private security industry, particularly at a frontline level, in the right direction. And if the industry gets behind collectively, speaking with one voice, we're going to go some way to get that kind of systemic change that I'm looking for. Because I'm not looking for anything less than that. <laughs> Hit me with your three things, Lisa. Hit yeah, me with yeah. them. 
So the first transformational change, so it's changing the way in which we perceive safeguarding in the UK. So that needs to first address the massive gender gap, that's 10% only of women. Mm-hmm. We've got to address the fact that there isn't the recruitment and selection processes rubbish and that we still seem to be putting big, scary-looking blokes on the doors and we need to change that. They need to better reflect the communities in which they serve. We need to address work-life balance. We need to address pay, right? You know, living wage, right? We need to stop unscrupulous security companies out there exploiting people because that's essentially what's happened. We need to ensure that the entry-level training that is overseen by the SIA is fit for purpose. It's not. And they need to all come together to make sure that that happens. The second is why I came into this industry in the first place. It's like my rage against violence against vulnerable people. And it's like, again, unacceptable. We need, as an industry, but as a society, we need to understand that it's just unacceptable and that we can't look to our neighbour to do something about it. If it materially affects your life, you need to get off your ass and you need to open your mouth. There's an election coming up in a year's time. Do something about it. Yes. Right? Do something about it. Speak to your local MP. Speak to your local police and crime commissioner about this and find out what you can do. It affects everyone. It's everybody's problem. And also, who wants to live in a world where that shit is still happening? Absolutely. So that's number two. And number three is kind of linked to that. And it's about building resilient communities because I'm all about community. The safer spaces and resilient communities. And again, that uh, community space could be a football terrace. It could be a university campus. It could be your local park. It could be a car park. And it's about ensuring that these places, again, are the purpose that audits are done to ensure that they take into consideration all people, all types of people, all types of circumstances when they're doing their planning when they're thinking about their budgets and what they should cut and what they shouldn't cut you know thinking about that aspect there's a piece of legislation which i heard today feels as though it we believe is going to finally in the king's speech and so we think it's going to go through there is an amazing woman called fegan murray she is a campaigner uh, and the mother of a young man who died in the manchester bombing and since then she has just selflessly been campaigning for government to bring in legislation to make it incumbent on organisations that have a capacity over 100 people to have a minimum benchmark in terms of safety standards so that if, for example, God forbid, anything like Manchester or Brixton happens again, the protocol that across the industry, everyone has a minimum standard that we're working towards. But it's also about ensuring that the general public, again, it's back to people owning their part in making this world that we live in, right? So it's about how do we disseminate that information from that sort of top-level information down to a mum and dad level or to a community leader level or to schools or wherever. These are the people that we need to ensure have an understanding of their role and responsibility within the wider framework Keeping people in the country. Yeah, safe, yeah. Right? we're all kind of on the front line for sure. Absolutely. Lisa, I applaud your rage, your passion, your mouth. More of it, please. Thank you very much. Where can people find out more about Second Line of Defence? Go to my website. I'm at www.second, that's 2ndlineofdefence.com. 
and second line of defense on instagram and also on facebook and also anyone please everyone and anyone who wants to learn what they can do find out what they can do in their local communities to kind of have this conversation keep it going so that we don't see other Sarah Everards. We don't want to see situations like that. We don't want more Manchester arenas and we don't want any more Brotons. So I just want to encourage everyone to have a voice, to share their voice, to talk to their friends about what it is I'm doing and what I want to achieve and because it, it affects them. It affects their daily lives. It doesn't matter how small, there is something that all of us can do to get us across the line. We want to live in a place that is not as depressing as the one that we live in, right? So Watch this space. <laughs> Lisa, thank you so, so much for chatting with me. Thank you for having me. I'm joined by fashion editor and editor of the new book, Style and Substance, Why What We Wear Matters, Bay Garnet. And Bay is apparently partial to gold chains and leopard prints. So a woman after my own heart. Thank you so much for joining me, Bay. Pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So the book is described as a gloriously eclectic celebration of self-expression. And it it really is a gloriously (laughs) eclectic set of essays. Can you tell us a little bit about it, please? You know, I kind of wanted to do a book, but I didn't want to be, you know, writing a book as to what I thought was stylish and because it's not very interesting and it's kind of just a couple of sentences long. So it's just this idea of having a dig around and having lots of different voices and points of view and hopefully, you know, being inspiring, you know, about the joy, the power, the freedom, you know, that style can give you. Okay, so uh, among the essays, you've chosen words from the likes of Bernadine Evaristo, MIA, Julie Cooper, AJ Tracy, Bram Stoker and Leo Tolstoy. So it is very eclectic. I mean, where do you even start in compiling a list like this? How did you choose... The, the different texts that you wanted to include in it? That's a really good question. I mean, I will say this, you know, right from the get-go, is that like anything I've ever done in my life, in terms of work, you know, it's always a collaboration. So my editor was brilliant and she's made suggestions and then things kind of came together in a really nice way. So Susie Cave, you know, who talks about Gothic, you know, it's a kind of, her style is very kind of rooted in Gothic. And so that thing of kind of going back to a great piece of gothic text, you know, Bram Stoker, felt like the most kind of obvious one. And and so there was that thing and then having, you know, Sylvia Plath, Robert Herrick, the the poets and, you know, looking around, ideas, input. It wasn't just me. People gave me great ideas. And and so it was the mishmash of stuff, really, and, and ways of getting it and thinking about it. And I wanted a bit of lots of different things. Do you have a particular favourite? Yeah, that, yeah, I love F. Scott Fitzgerald. The Great Gatsby's one of my favourite books. I love that extract of Daisy Buchanan sobbing into his shirts because they're so beautiful. And I love Chloe Seven News. And I love, I love Rachel Vice on Blue Denim. I love Sylvia Plath on her dress. I mean, sorry, I'm giving you a list. There are so many that I really love. What is it that you were looking for in these people? It was about, I suppose, style being this very, like, independent, powerful, individual, fun, empowering, uh, life-enhancing thing, something to explore, something to bring pleasure and joy into your life. I hope the book is quite light in the sense of, ah, oh, that's really nice, oh, lovely, or, you know, 
it makes you think all those things, I hope. It doesn't make you think, oh, God, I really should dress better. Or I hope it makes me think, I might try that. Oh, yeah, I like that. You know, it's all quite down to earth as well. Bella Foy talking about the suit, the charm of the suit. You know, anyone can get a suit. Or Charlotte Tilbury talking about throwing on a belt with a sweater. Or, you know, it's just tweaks, but they're, they're powerful tweaks. You know, little signatures around clothes, which I think are really, I don't know, fun. I think that a lot of people might argue that you know, the the fashion industry historically hasn't been that kind to women. Is that a sort of old-fashioned view? Do you think we're moving away from that a little bit? I think that, you know, lots of things have changed out over the, for the last three or four years, absolutely. You know, there's been diversity. Fashion really, really was a place for just tall, skinny, beautiful women. And quite a kind of rigid take on that as well. And I think that's really changed now. But really thin. Like, women were really, they had to be really thin. And what was that? When no woman that I knew looked like that. Oh, very few. And the ones I did, actually, or few, were models. So, you know, <laughs> there we go. That was their job. And so I think it has really changed. And I think that Instagram has changed that, that thing of images and information just being on the surface and just rising up, you know, the, all the different voices. It sort of was inevitable. So it's lovely looking at a lovely image where someone looks fantastic, but not every single one the same kind of look. I think women are much less tolerant of that. They're like, come on. So I started making my own clothes about a year ago. Dressmaking has taught me is about the value of clothes because it is expensive if you, if you want to get good fabric. And I know that this is an issue that you're sort of quite interested in in terms of sustainability. And one of your current roles is as senior fashion advisor to Oxfam. I've wondered if you had any thoughts on sustainability in fashion, how bad is fast fashion for the environment? I mean, listen, the finger is always pointed at fast fashion. It, it really is. And I'm sure that the people who know their stuff would say that perhaps they're you know, very much largely responsible because the clothes are so cheap. The equation is therefore they get discarded. But it's it's more about in really expensive fashion too. It's just an overproduction of new stuff and we're sold to want new stuff and it's all about new stuff and that yeah that's business right so i think that wouldn't it be great if you know everything could just slow down in terms of clothes i mean yeah the, the, the you know landfill is a really really big problem um and also with landfill which is i guess to do with more cheaper clothes for sure it, it, it is in all directions and i've heard stories about luxury goods companies having you know huge amounts of waste going on which is less spoken about I'm not quite sure why but maybe because all the charity shops there's all this fast fashion in landfill and I think the other thing is is that oftentimes with fast fashion clothes the fabrics they don't decompose you know they're made of cute they've got oil in them they've got you know so they're it's it's not great I mean it's really not great so you know you've got that the fact that from start to finish the process is bad for the environment so I guess that's why so yeah I mean that's why they get more flack but I think we need to look at every aspect of the way that we buy clothes and and in all different ways and try and buy less myself included by the way yeah Yeah, no me too so but you're a pioneer of rifting which I think in the UK we kind of know more as uh, just going to charity shops basically 
I wondered if you could tell me, what is the difference between second-hand clothes shopping and vintage clothes shopping? Is it literally just the price point and, and the curation? It's the same thing. It's just a different way of saying it. One indicates, you know, a more expensive, more edited, curated feel, whereas one could encompass vintage and charity shop. One is a generic term and one implies a more curated selection. To me, they mean the same thing, yeah. I gather that you were the first fashion editor to include vintage pieces in luxury shoots. So we've obviously come a really long way in, in quite a short space of time in terms of how, how we view secondhand clothes. Yeah, we really have. Oh, well, it's massively different now, isn't it? The climate is, you know, it's completely different from how it was. That shoot was 20 years ago. It was in 2003, which is, you know, 20 years is a long time ago. I can't quite believe it was 20 years ago. Oh, but that's still very recent, isn't it, if you think about how things are now? Yeah, do you think? Oh, I feel like 20 years feels like a really long time ago. Yeah, but I feel like we've come a long way in a very short space uh, yeah, of time. Yeah, but actually, you know what? We've only come this far really in the last five years, actually. I, I mean, I did the first fashion show for Oxfam in 2016. And I mean, you know, it was really like just my friends and family there and, and some Oxfam people, but it was very unsexy. It was very like, oh, great, great, great. But, you know, people weren't really interested at all. So that was in 2016. It, it was really not on the radar. And then, what, in 2023, we opened up London Fashion Week, um, the Fashion Fighting Poverty. So, what I'm saying is, my point is, is that eight years ago, secondhand wasn't really on the radar. And it's only in the last, I would say, maybe six years, five years, you know, when Depop, Vinted, you know, I mean, there was always people who loved secondhand, of course, but I'm talking about the fact now it's really, it's really big, really quite recent. So 20 years ago is really a long time in the thing of secondhand because to me, it feels like, because it feels like quite a really recent surge in popularity in the true sense, in a commercial sense, you know, in a way where it's, it's not even a different thing to do to buy new. You know, if someone says they bought something from H&M or someone says they bought something from Vintage, you know, it's the same language, right? Do you know what I mean? You're not any more surprised. I mean, I have friends who do really well in charity shops, but I I do not seem to be that lucky when I when I go into charity shops. I'm, I'd not really, I, I never seem to find the amazing things that my friends do. I wondered if you had any top tips for bagging a bargain in a uh, secondhand shop. Annoyingly, quite a lot of the charity shops do have a lot of high street stuff in them now. So that is true. I can't not say that. You know, you find shops which which have the kind of the gems in it, but they used to be much more, much more full of gems than they than they seem to be now. But I think having said that, I I have found such amazing things over the years, and I still do. I found an amazing kind of pale lilac shirt that I love, a men's shirt from. The men's rail in a charity shop recently. And so I think that what I do is I have things in my mind that I'm kind of looking for, that I'm thinking about. And oftentimes, and I think it's quite good to go to a charity shop with something in mind because it kind of connects you to the experience and something you'll probably find something good. I think it's harder if you're just going in aimlessly. So I was looking for a man's pale lilac shirt in that thick cotton and I found one. And I'd seen an expensive one online, actually, and I'd wanted it. And then I thought, oh, I'll get one from the charity shop. So, or go in, you know, what are you looking for? Great, 
great roll neck sweater. Go in with that in mind. You might not find that, but you probably will find something else quite good to go in with focus. And is it as it ever was? It's kind of about location as well in terms of, of finding the good stuff. Obviously, we don't want to, I don't want to steal all of your secrets, but <laughs> is there an area where you go to that you think is really good for charity shops? Yeah, Chelsea's really good. Chelsea in London is yeah. really good. Yeah, I mean, even like seaside villages sometimes get a great T-shirt, like weird towns in Wales. You know, because it's not just clothes, but you could maybe find some lovely china or cushion. You know, it's just about popping in as well. You know, I like going sometimes when I've not got something in mind. But in terms of areas, I think it's probably a posh town in Sussex. I mean, you know, it's kind of obvious. Like, if you go to a really poor neighbourhood, you're probably not going to get expensive silk shirts. Do you know what I mean? So, Bay, you've also got a podcast, This Old Thing. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's really about, it's, it's kind of like the book in a way. It's this idea of kind of telling stories through clothes. So I have different guests and then I ask them kind of the same questions. So it's, it, it's really, it's the kind of the thing of the fabric of our lives, you know, for me, you know, clothes tell stories they can do. And it's just sort of delving into that. So what would you never throw out? What would you, what do you love? What, what do you remember someone from your family wearing? What's your favorite style in a movie? And, it's really just that thing of clothes, just, um, you know, hearing what people, my guests, think about clothes and style and stories around it. Do you have an item that you're particularly emotionally attached to, I guess? Uh, yeah, I mean, less so now, actually. But, you know, there's a friend of mine knitted me a sweater with my name on it, and I really love that. And then my first, my, in my shoot for Vogue, my banana top that I used in that charity shop shoot with Kate Moss and... Yeah, things like that. And then just things that I wear every day, like sweaters. and But less so those, because those are replaceable. But probably though, because you can always get like a lovely cashmere roll neck. But yeah, probably some of my pieces that I've had for years that I've used in shoots and stuff. Style and Substance, Why What We Wear Matters is published by John Murray Press and is available now. Bay, where can we find you on social media if we want to keep up to date with what you're up to? At Bay Garnet. And is that on Twitter or Instagram? Oh, Instagram, I'm not on Twitter. Good for you. That sounds sensible. Okay. Bay, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we give the patriarchy a cauliflower ear as we discuss all things women's sport. So as I promised you up the top, the Allianz Premiership Women's Rugby League has returned. Whoop whoop! You all have previously known the league as the Premier 15s, but this season it's rebranded. This follows a move from under the wing of the RFU, the Rugby Football Union, which is the sport's governing body, to a brand new limited company headed up by chief exec Belinda Moore. This is the dream, really. It's what we ultimately want for the WSL to come away from the FA and become an entity in its own right, like the Premier League, for example. But the good news is, in case you're wondering if women's rugby is ready for this, the RFU are still heavily involved. We wouldn't want to see this or any other women's competition go the way of the W Series, for example. And while women's sport has come a long way, it really is still in its infancy in terms of development and backing remains pretty scarce compared to men's sport. 
Anyway, more good news here is that you'll be able to watch the nine-team league on your TV with TNT Sport, set to show one game a week. You'll probably know that Saracens and Harlequins have dominated the league since its inception, but last season's champions were Gloucester Hartbury, although they didn't play this weekend. The opening fixture saw some big results, notably the Bristol Bears, who thrashed Sale Sharks 48-5, and Abby Ward returned from giving birth to her first child in July with a try on her first match back for the Bears. Newcomers Trailfinders Women, an Ealing-based team, nearly got the better of the 2021 champions Harlequins, but didn't quite pull it off, losing 17-22. Abby Fleming took the final try for the Quins on her debut for the club. You'll remember last year, around this time in fact, I interviewed the brilliant Shauna Brown, who left to coach the Cayman Islands national team for a little while, but I'm delighted to say she's returned and she started for the Quins on Saturday. Saracens also took a big win over Loughborough Lightning, 48-7, while last year's finalist Exeter Chiefs took on newbies Leicester Tigers and won 44-27. But the Tigers look to be well in control of the game at times. It'll be interesting to see how their season progresses. They're going to face reigning champions Gloucester on Saturday. If you want to watch at the weekend, Exeter Chiefs v Bristol Bears will be the match showing on TNT on Sunday from 1230 Feels a bit weird to me that they didn't start the league with an even number of teams so that one doesn't have to sit out each week, but I'm sure they have their reasons. A bit more good news, which relates to what I was saying last week as I was singing the praises of Emma Hayes. Hayes, who, incidentally, it was announced literally the evening after I recorded last week's Journey Off the Block and after we'd already put the podcast together, she will indeed join the US women's national football team as head coach. The move will make her the world's highest paid female coach. So fair play to her, although I... I hope she'll be a little bit less successful there than she was in the WSL, if I'm completely honest. It's a very confusing mixture of emotions I'm going through right now. There was a very interesting piece on the Times website last week about Stuart Searle, one-time crazy gang boot boy turned Chelsea women's goalkeeping coach. It's sort of hilarious if you remember the crazy gang, that's at Wimbledon AFC, which included the likes of Vinnie Jones, Dennis Wise, etc. If you don't, basically, they were lads and Quite violent lads at that. Searle is now considered to be one of the best women's goalkeeping coaches in the world. And why is that? Well, it's because of periods and the groundbreaking research that the club has done under Hayes' stewardship alongside Dr. Georgie Brunvels, a women's health specialist, and Ava Woods, a soft tissue therapist at the club. Searle jokes that he now knows more about his wife's cycle than she does herself, thanks to this work. Now, it is all a little bit complicated to go into in any real detail here, but it's an interesting read which you can find on the Times website, and I'll tweet out a link. But the bottom line is only 6% of studies in sport and exercise are carried out on women alone. And perhaps, unsurprisingly, those studies can make a difference to performance. The club has found, for example, slower reaction times and cognitive response during certain points of a women's cycle. Now imagine, imagine if we knew more. That's all for me this week. I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated, an intro I'm thinking we should probably change to buckle up, it's Rated or Dated, <laughs> because Hannah, what film did we watch this week? 
This week, we watched 1983's Trading Places, a comedy starring Eddie Murphy, Dan Aykroyd and Jamie Lee Curtis's tits. <laughs> if picking this film seems like an act of self-immolation, don't worry, my powder is going to be immediately soaking. As I tell you, I fucking love this film. However it is that Mickey feels about Ghostbusters or millions of people feel about Raiders of the Lost Ark, that's how I feel about this. Does it make me wince in parts? Of course. Um. Do I still adore it? Yes, I do. In 2020, it was one of 16 films that had a disclaimer added by Sky, which read, quote, this film has outdated attitudes, language and cultural depictions which may cause offence today. That move, coming as it did in 2020, absolutely screams, this was in response to racism. But Trading Places is an equal opportunities offender, <laughs> and that warning could also refer to homophobic yeah. language. It also contains more tits than any other film I have ever seen. I first saw it when I was 13. Mick, Jen, have you seen it before? Yes, I've seen bits of it before. And I've seen Jamie Lee Curtis's tits in it before, <laughs> but I don't think I've ever seen the whole film. I'm pretty sure it was written into all of her contracts in the 80s that she had to get her tits out <laughs> at least once. Give me an idea of how old you were when you first saw it, Mick. Yeah, probably 12 or 13, I think. Pretty young, pretty young. I was a big Eddie Murphy fan, obviously a big Dan Aykroyd fan, because a year after this is when he did Ghostbusters. So mm-hmm. huge Dan Aykroyd fan. So yeah, I'll have sorted it out or, or been shown it because of that. Whether it's appropriate for 12 or 13 year olds, I imagine we'll get on well, to that. <laughs> so that disclaimer out of the way, let's get to the fun facts. First developed with Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder in mind, Trading Places was directed by John Landis, who I'm sure you all know who he is. Yeah, American right. yeah, Werewolf yeah. in London is one of my favourite yeah. films too. Obviously the Blues Brothers, he was worked with Dan Aykroyd quite a lot, didn't he? Thriller is also mm-hmm. John Landis. Yes. It was the fourth highest grossing film of 1983 in North America, where it was released in July, despite being set around Christmas. Is it a Christmas film? Maybe we can get to that later. Its total box office was $120.6 million worldwide, and reviews were mostly positive, although some critics disliked the fact that Billy Ray and Louis, or Louis, end up really rich at the end well i mean it was the 1980s (laughs) capitalism for the win hooray (laughs) now we're obviously going to get to some of the more negative legacy of this film which i remind you i absolutely adore but (laughs) in terms of its cast it was quite extraordinary eddie murphy who had only made one other film at this point 48 hours which had not yet been released went on to sign a 25 million dollar five film deal Dan Aykroyd escaped a run of duds and bounced straight into Ghostbusters, as Mickey said. Jamie Lee Curtis, who up until that point had been seen as a horror actor, was catapulted into the mainstream and won a BAFTA. Denim Elliott also won a BAFTA. In fact, it was the first of three consecutive Best Supporting Actor wins for him. And Donna Michi, who had been believed dead before he was cast in Trading Places, went on to win an Oscar for his role in Cocoon in 1985. We're definitely going to have to watch Cocoon at some point. Well, not at some point, in 2025. Yeah. You'll also see the cultural influence of trading places in all sorts of other places. Do you remember how Jill and Tommy Garvey greeted each other whenever they met in The Leftovers, Mick? No, I don't. My my brain doesn't retain that. Looking good, Billy Ray. Feeling good, Lewis. The film also regularly appears in explainers about short-selling and futures trading. 
And it's absolutely why I understand both of those concepts. I still don't understand having seen it and tried to read around it. It still confuses me. I can explain it. Plus, there's a 2010 stock market rule about insider trading, which is known as the Eddie Murphy rule. Although technically, I suppose it should be called the Clarence Beaks rule. Now, let's get to the plot. In the city of brotherly love, two old man, old money bankers, the Duke brothers... Randolph, who's played by Ralph Bellamy, and Mortimer, who's played by Don, reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated, <laughs> Amici, have a debate about nature or nurture. It ends in a bet in which they ruin the life of one of their top employees, Lewis Winthorpe III, that's Dan Aykroyd. They then give his house and his job to a hustler, Billy Ray Valentine, played by Eddie Murphy, to see which man, if either, will prosper in their new life. Billy Ray, though baffled, with the help of Butler Coleman, that's Denham Elliott, absolutely does prosper. Louis, despite the help of a prostitute, Ophelia, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, spirals. But when they finally meet, they realise together they hold all the keys to bringing down the Duke brothers, who are secretly plotting to corner the frozen orange juice market. One wildly inappropriate chain journey later, they set off to Wall Street with a plan of their own. End result... The good guys end up very, very rich. The bad guys end up sleeping rough. Hang on, Hannah, I hear you say. We don't know they end up homeless by the end of this film. And you'd be right, except Bellamy and Amici appear together again in... Coming to America. Coming to America. And they are indeed living on the street. The end. Oh, hang on. The other bad guy, the aforementioned Beaks, gets fucked by a gorilla. For eternity. Oh, oh, wowzers. Oh, it's, it's, I mean, you've already covered this, Hannah, but it's, it's so problematic. It's yeah. so problematic. But yeah, I also have a soft spot for it with massive caveats. So I thought I might start with the question about the message, because this sort of harks back to screwball comedy films of the 30s. And this is what people were criticising it for, that those films tended to have a message along the lines of, say it's a wonderful life which was you don't need money you just need love i actually think weirdly the message of this film resonates more in this country in the uk than it does in america because i would say the message of this film is you can succeed whether you were born into wealth or not and that message everybody believes in america because that's the american dream isn't it Mm -hmm. whereas in this country with the sort of class system and the structure, it's actually way more of an achievement, I would say, for someone who grew up dirt poor to achieve than it is in America because the system's not set up the same. Yeah, it does sort of celebrate meritocracy, doesn't it, I guess? And capitalism. I guess what they're saying is, so he has to be given an equal platform Mm -hmm. in order to succeed. He can't just, like, be brilliant. Like, he has to be given the tools or the position in order to do that except that what they eventually need at the end is some seed money Mm. and where their seed money comes from is from the two working class characters who've actually saved their money into a small amount it comes from coleman and from Ophelia. yeah yeah so it's saying you don't necessarily need a platform what you need is just an opportunity if you are given the opportunity you can succeed, but you have to be given the opportunity yeah, opportunity yeah. in yeah. order to do so. Whereas America, as you say, is a bit more like, nah, anyone can just do anything regardless. Like everyone has yeah. the same opportunity, which patently isn't true. And I think that that film is quite clear on that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, we might as well just go head on into it. There is absolutely no defence of the blackface in this film. We have discussed it before. Um, Yosra and I discussed it when we were talking about problematic films that we really, really liked. There is absolutely no defence of it. Interestingly, there's a documentary called The N-Word, which actually does defend the use of that in this film. And it is a documentary by a black guy, I feel the need to say. And he actually does defend it by saying that, you know, the veneer of civilization is very, very thin, particularly with Randolph, because he comes across as the nicer of the two brothers. Kind of a bunkular, isn't he? Yeah. And therefore, when he accepts the way his brother speaks, it's even more shocking. Doesn't just accept it. He feels the same, but just hides it differently, Mm. whereas Mortimer doesn't hide it. And I think there is a there's a problem there with the film as well, in that they kind of go look, we've got this guy who we're pointing out to be a bad guy who is a racist and therefore we get away with stuff when actually, ah, ah, ah. There's no reason that Dan Aykroyd needs to blackface. Absolutely no yeah. reason that he needs to do that and that it's that it's funny. It's not funny. It's just really, really no. cringy. I've seen the defence of it. It was like, well, Eddie Murphy was there and went along with it, but he was 21 well, on his second film. Yeah. You know, what's he going to do? How's he going to yeah. stand up to Aykroyd and Landis? He's, he's not. Now would be very different, I'm sure. But also, our good guy, or one of our good guys, Louis, also is very racist and actually yeah. comes across as racist. So I think it is a racist film, even also, though it points to someone being more racist as a way of getting around it. The portrayal of the African character is deeply offensive as well. Like Eddie, Eddie Murphy's, Murphy's portrayal Ugandan. of the... Mm. I thought you said Cameroonian. But, oh, sorry, uh, yeah, you're right, yeah. you are right. His portrayal of the African exchange student is mm. really, really offensive as well. Yeah, you'll get no argument here. And also, the other characters who are men of colour mainly... Not, um, mm. There's a one woman of colour who Eddie Murphy sexual predatorises, which I'm having as a phrase. But yeah, they're all <laughs> in service industries, aren't they? They're, yeah. they're the waiters, they're the drivers. You know, it is very much, it has this view of what black people should be doing in America. I don't know, I would say doing. should be. It's what they are doing in America. Yeah, oh no, I'm not saying it isn't reflective of how society has worked and certainly in, mm. in the 80s, but it just, it doesn't offer anything else other than Eddie Murphy's character, Billy Ray, who is almost a magical character who can just suddenly grasp, you know, he says it's like, you're like bookies, aren't you? But he can suddenly grasp all sorts of things and see how the market's going to mm. be doing stuff. It's, it, it's, yeah, I don't think it's portrayal of people of colour is very good. It's a short way of putting this. I think it's really interesting because obviously I've never properly seen this film before, so I didn't know a lot about it. I just knew, like, it's reputation... Like, its contemporary reputation precedes it, basically. Like, I know it's known for all sorts of dodginess, but I haven't actually properly seen it. So I thought it was really interesting to watch because I think some of the points it makes, like, you know, like the sort of message of it, the points that it makes, the the themes that it's discussing are actually genuinely really interesting. But for me, it is so massively undermined. That kind of, like, morality, I guess, that it, that it is sort of talking about is so massively undermined by these like old school offensive representations and that's not to say that is a contemporary thing you know it would be unfair to judge it completely on that basis but for me watching it now for the first time ever it really does stand out well it's worth going back to what that disclaimer at the top said which may cause offense today yeah 
Yeah. I mean, there's an argument that it caused offence amongst some people at the time. But yes, that offence would be way more universal. Now. Yeah, I agreed. What really struck me, because I was I was ready for that. And, you know, it's 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 a scene that I know about. I've seen this film a lot. I, I've enjoyed this film a lot. But what struck me watching it for the first time in many, many years, I haven't seen it for a long time, was the homophobia as well. That absolutely jumped out at me. You know, the sexism, Jamie, like, she's basically the Smurfette. There's not really any other women in this film and she is just there to be sort of helped. She does save... I disagree with that entirely. She saves absolutely. Louis or she helps Louis and she's... Mm. Tar she looks with after a... herself. But the tart with a heart thing is so annoying, Hannah. But also I think it puts enough backstory into her that she actually says, like she constantly refers to Louis as an investment. She's not dumb. She's taking him on she's because she knows she's going to make money out of it at the end of it. She's yeah. not dumb, but I don't. She doesn't really do that much. Like I don't she's know. She's quite I mean, two-dimensional, I think, yeah. apart from her tits, which are very three D. Yeah. But no, you're right, Hannah. She's not a Smurfette, but I do. I just find that the tart with a heart thing really annoying, and they don't give her very much to do. Even though, as you pointed out, she ends up being one of the two characters who make them make this money or enable them to make all this yeah. money because of her hard graft. She has um, agency, but yeah, she's very two-dimensional despite having agency. So I showed my nephew this film. He was the first person to point out to me that the film ends with a man potentially being raped to death by a monkey. That hadn't even really occurred <laughs> to me before that. So whether I'm the right person to even rate or date this in the sense that, I mean, I know it's dated, but because I watch this so much because this just isn't, I mean, I love this film, but actually quite a few of my friends love this film as well. In fact, my friend who died this year, the very last message he sent me was the gif of Eddie Murphy bursting onto the train saying, Merry New Year! Aww. Because Trading Places. Yeah. The thing that shocks me every single time that I watch it, and I forget every single time, is how many tits there are in it. There's so Just many a staggering tits in amount it. of tits in it. Gratuitous tit watch is like off the scale. Yeah. Come back to my house and take your shirt off. Because that's what we all do at parties, isn't it, ladies? Absolutely. Come on now. Well, certainly if you're from yeah. a, a particular neck of the woods, Jen, it's, you know, what else have we got? I've got a fun fact here. Well, you'll probably have noticed this, but... Among the other famous faces in this, there's a young Giancarlo Esposito in the lockup with Eddie Murphy. Bo Diddley, the musician, is the <laughs> pawnbroker who says, that's so hot, it burnt my fingers. Frank Oz is in this, and also Eddie Murphy's Saturday Night Live co-stars Al Franken and Tom Davies. So lots of famous faces in this. Tonamichi and Denimelia are both absolutely wonderful in this. I was struck by uh, the baggage handlers on the train and one of them, I was just like, is this where Easy e got his look from? <laughs> <laughs> the one with the with the curly hair and that I was just like, this is exactly... Al Franken, that is. Oh, yeah. is it? Yeah, I was just yeah. like, this, that is exactly the look like that Easy e was like completely famous for. Can we talk about Drunk Santa? Because that's one of my favourite moments in the film. Dan Aykroyd as Drunk Santa. Like the the very opposite of It's a Wonderful Life, which you mentioned yeah. earlier, Hannah. It's this grubby... I mean, I don't even know why he steals a salmon. Because he's going home to Jamie Lee Curtis's Ophelia, who's cooking him a nice dinner. What is he doing? I know it's because he's spiralling, but when yeah. he tucks a whole fish down his jacket and has just oh. pulled it out on the bus and it's stuck in his beard. Oh, so, so funny though. Yeah. 
so funny. But that is a great example of, for me, one of the best or the most magical things about Trading Places is the number of reaction shots they have in it. That is perfect. Yes. That woman on the bus who just looks at him with absolute horror, where the guy that runs the board comes down and, and talks to them. And that's when Donna B. says, fuck my brother. And he just goes, <laughs> like that. Big eyes. When Beak tells the baggage handlers he's going to piss on their brain, Denim Elliot just does the most extraordinary what the fuck face. And actually, Eddie Murphy breaks the fourth wall twice by staring directly into the camera. When Mortimer, I've written this down because I love it so much, I think it might actually be my favourite moment in the entire film is when Mortimer is patronising Billy Ray and Murphy breaks the fourth wall and just looks straight at the camera. He barely does anything with his face. He just does a what kind of look yeah. and it is absolute perfection jen did it make you laugh yeah it did bits of it yeah it did it, it, i think i didn't um articulate what i was trying to say very well earlier in that it has more depth to it than i was imagining so like i i find that it is that is enormously undermined by the the aspects of it that do not translate well now mm. shall we say but it had a lot more depth to it than i imagined it would from what i knew of it if you see what i mean I think it's actually got, I mean, and I I don't know, I can't speak for the people who made the film, but it feels to me that it actually had quite good intentions. Yeah, I think that's Mm. right. I think it absolutely did. And and so that's why I say that, you know, that sort of contemporary view of of the things that are wrong with it. Like, yeah, I don't don't think it is fair to judge it entirely on that basis. As I say, I think it had way more depth than I imagined it would. And I think it is like a, an interesting kind of discussion on like capitalism and morality and meritocracy and, and all yeah. of that stuff is actually genuinely really interesting. And I think you're right. It probably did have quite good intentions. But yeah, I yeah. mean, times change, innit? And rightly so. <laughs> yeah, again, I fully agree. And like I say, to me, the overwhelming point of watching this is that is that idea that the veneer of civilization is so thin. Yeah. And that people who are well respected are quite often amongst the worst people yeah. in the world. Yeah. yeah. A lot of the points that I think it makes are absolutely still relevant today, 100%, because that world is not going anywhere, is it? I mean, l- yeah. look at our society, look at our government. It's it's all alive and well. I have one more question. And to be honest, I don't really care because whether or not things are Christmas films are entirely who gives a fuck for me because... I don't really have a thing about Christmas films in the way that a lot of people do, so I don't feel strongly. But I wondered, is this a Christmas film or not? I think think Mickey Noonan can answer that question. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure lots of other people would disagree with you there, Jen, but I think I would say, yes, it is a Christmas film because I also think Die Hard is a Christmas film because it is set at Christmas and it has got a kind of heartwarming message for all that, that might be undermined now. It has got quite a heartwarming message. And even though Die Hard, again, that was also released in summer, Christmas film. I think it's definitely a Christmas film. And I'm pretty sure I've watched it at Christmas. That's when it's been on the telly. Yeah, I agree. Is Christmas integral to the plot of it? Could it happen at any other time of year? And I would actually say I don't think this film could happen at any other time of year because it requires the closing of the of the stock exchange for a period in which that they are able to get together and do something about it they need some days off work essentially and therefore i don't think it could be set it needed some bank holidays and (laughs) therefore christmas is i would say integral to it agreed they don't have a lot of bank holidays in the in the states just you know just to throw that into the mix but why is 
frozen orange juice so funny i don't know but i always find it really funny that that's what it all rests on is they're trying to corner the frozen orange juice market yeah just i don't know it just seems a little bit ridiculous but there is merit to it doesn't it yeah yeah it feels very um frozen orange juice feels very like 80s aspirational though doesn't it like sunny delight or whatever was, yeah, was that kind like of aspirational image of like, for teenagers. Like, all, you all know. good breakfasts. Certainly in America, they are a little bit obsessed with orange juice. So if you have a bad orange crop, then how are you going to get your OJ? Not to be confused with Simpson obs. But yeah, you need your OJ in the morning. And therefore, if you're having the frozen stuff from concentrate, it's better than nothing. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad Frank Oz was in it as well, which I hadn't noticed. But thank you for pointing that out to me. Because Statler and Waldorf, that's what I think about when I think of the Duke brothers. Yeah. Okay, this is a much simpler question to answer. Rated or dated? It's dated. It is dated. It is dated, yeah. Thanks for listening. (laughs) What are we watching next week? I'm sorry, due to an administrative error. Thanks, Mickey, for that. I very much thought it was Mickey's turn next week, and it isn't. It's my turn, and I haven't picked something. So I will select something and tweet it out. I'll watch it atop a volcano. Please don't be Volcano or Dante's Peak. Standard issue for all women.